in the beautiful West 7th neighborhood of St. Paul, Minnesota, you're listening to the Capital City Podcast. No one knows exactly how coffee spread into wide use, but one of the main lore, one of the main stories is that there was a monk in like, I forget if it was uh, Ethiopia or somewhere, it was a Christian monk who would give these really long sermons. And so he, f- he realized that his goats uh, wouldn't sleep or they'd be extra sort of attentive and excited after they'd eat from a certain plant. And so he's like, well, I'm going to go get the beans from that plant and give them to all of my parishioners during my long sermons. Uh, that's one of the stories as to how coffee got its foundation. So like when I say, feel free to go get some coffee, like it's, it's actually a beautiful hearkening back to the original <laughs> use. All right, cool. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to open in prayer today because um, for those of you that ha- you know, haven't been here or don't know, we're going to be doing four weeks in a row of inviting uh, our um, friends in, black preachers, to come in and preach for us for four weeks. And so I'm taking this week to sort of queue up and tee up that time. It'll be of all the sermons that I give in the year, it'll be most like a talk. It'll still be a sermon, but like on that blurry line between a, like an informative, educational sort of queuing up those those times. Uh, so let me pray to open us. Uh, Lord, thank you so much for uh, these these beautiful saints. Thank you for Capital City Church and that we can come together and worship you freely, Lord. Um, I pray now for, for wisdom. I pray that your Holy Spirit would pour out. Um, this is certainly push some people's buttons and, and, and bother some and encourage others. And I just pray that your Holy Spirit would be over this, that you would give me true words to speak uh, and help me with... Um, Help me with the nuance needed to cover this well. Uh, In Jesus' name, amen. All right, thanks guys so much for being here. Um, All right, let me open with this story. So in April of 1963, the Alabama Christian Movement for Human Rights and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference carried out marches and sit-ins to protest racism and segregation in the South. And though the First Amendment of the United States allows, or or rather, um, you know, makes this legal for people to peaceably assemble, many of those who marched in this march were arrested anyway uh, on just sort of trumped up charges. And while sitting in jail, somebody smuggled a newspaper into some of the leaders of this march. And in that smuggled newspaper, there was a letter called A Call for Unity, and it was written by eight white clergymen. Seven of them were leaders in various Christian denominations, Catholic, mainline Protestant, evangelical, and one was a Jewish rabbi. And these men argued in their open letter that all these marches and sit-ins were too too extreme. Now, a lot of people misunderstand the story here, and they're like, okay, so there's your classic bad guy. You know, these are segregationists. You know, they're they're, they're bad ones. They're actually uh, not quite on that side of the the ticket. These were what you call moderates. So they actually believed that um, the civil rights movement was right and that it needed to happen. They just kind of wanted everyone to chill out and take things slower, right? So they were moderates. They believed in the vision of the civil rights movement, uh, but they didn't want marches. They didn't want these sit-ins. They wanted everything to just kind of go on as it was. They said this should all be taken care of in courts and through local leaders, local politicians. Now, on the outset, that doesn't sound all that crazy that people would want that. The problem is, is that this had already been tried for years and years and years, frankly, centuries, and it had failed spectacularly. So the courts weren't hearing cases illegally. Black people weren't allowed to vote in a majority of circumstances. There were many counties uh, in the South and in the North as well, uh, but there are many counties in the South where black people were a majority of the population, but there was not a single registered black voter. And this was illegal, but it's just how it was going. So there was no, there was no um, representation. So these reasonable and slower methods were tried and failed. 
So one of the men that, were, that was in that Birmingham jail who was involved in leading this march read this letter on this smuggled-in newspaper and began to write a response. Now, this man was very well-suited well to write a response to them because he, too, was a clergyman, he was a pastor, and he had a Ph.D. in theology, which, you know, they don't just hand those out. And so to be a black man in the 60s with a Ph.D. in theology was quite rare. Um, so arguing for racial justice from a biblical historical standpoint with other clergymen was sort of his sweet spot. But he wasn't allowed any paper. So he began to write in the margins in between the words of this smuggled in newspaper. He began to write a response to these eight men. And he begged the officers and police officers you know, outside to give him a pad of paper to write on, and the answer was no. So he did receive beatings and, and you know, uh, sort of uh, verbal abuse, but he wasn't given something as simple as a pad of paper to write on. So finally, the lawyers that were involved in these you know, Southern leadership groups got involved and brought him a writing pad so he'd have something to write on. And from that jail cell, just like the Apostle Paul often wrote from jail, he penned what many historians call possibly the most beautiful, most impactful theological civic document in America in the entire 20th century. It's so beautiful and so devastating. Like he, it's, just, it's actually sitting in your email inboxes now. If you're on our email list, some of those have been going to spam recently. I don't know, Google like changed their algorithms, so our open rate instantly dropped like 15% overnight. So check your spam folder in case you're not getting our emails. But I sent this letter to you rather than read large portions of it today. Um, in it, the, the author cites the Bible, history, theologians from Augustine to St. Thomas Aquinas to Luther. It's, it's one of those letters that even if you were to have disagreed with it, you, you almost can't. Like he just, he would drag anyone kicking and screaming even to the conclusion that he's right. Um, it was so effective, so true, so good that this is crazy. All eight of the men that wrote the original call for unity actually read this letter and they all changed their minds because of this letter written from jail, all eight of them. And they stepped up their game and allied themselves with the civil rights movement. I mean, can you imagine that in the political discourse today? Someone writes a beautiful letter and everybody on the other side changes their mind and like becomes a, a you know, starts fighting for this cause. So uh, they went for it. Uh, many of these uh, clergymen, these white men who wrote this original letter, actually ended up fighting on behalf of the civil rights movement. And a lot of them, this was Birmingham, Alabama, a lot of them lost their jobs for it. And because of threats to their families, they had to move away. So within a few years, seven of the eight of these men who originally were you know, criticizing this march, seven of the eight had to move away because of threats on their life. There's a great book on it if you want to read more. It's called Blessed Are the Peacemakers by S. Jonathan Bass. You can ask me about it later if you want to read that. Uh, but about this letter, it went on, this letter that was written in jail, it went on to be published in really all the major newspapers in the country. You know, New York Times, New York Post, The Atlantic, Washington Post. Millions of people read it then and still today. And uh, just to think that this letter, scrawled on the margins of a newspaper in jail, went on to become arguably the defining text of the American civil rights movement. And some of you might know where I'm headed with this, but the man in jail who wrote this letter was Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. 
I think this letter should be required reading for the human race, especially for every American. Uh, but sadly, I don't know if it's just a failure in my own education or what, but I'd never heard of the letter until maybe seven or eight years ago, uh, well after I graduated my undergrad. Uh, and again, this is sitting in your email inboxes. So between the service today, the sugar from the donuts, and the fried food from the Super Bowl party that we hope you go to later to reach out to people, you can read some of the best literature that's ever been written in America and, and read this in your email. Uh, so this letter, I almost hate to describe it because anything I say will make the letter seem less awesome than it really is. But just to give you a sense of it, uh, this letter walks these men through actual biblical teaching on justice uh, and what that means. He talks about the injustices against black people in the early 60s and in our country. And he talks about how they have been so systematically deprived of legal recourses that marches and sit-ins were all that was left it was all that they could do unless they were to move away from nonviolent um, marches, basically. There were other civil rights leaders who said, they want violence, let's go for it. Let's have wars in the street. You know, let's, let's, let's get violent about it. And Martin Luther King Jr., because of his belief in Jesus, because of following the gospel, he followed Jesus' example, right? Those who live by the sword, die by the sword, um, turn the other cheek. That was his example, and that came from the gospel. A lot of people don't know he was a minister of the gospel, he was a pastor, and he had this PhD in theology. A lot of people just think, oh, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. was a great civil rights leader. Yes, and his entire formation was the Bible and being a pastor. So he, he takes them through what a just law is and what an unjust law is and how it's under God we are right to follow just laws and we are right to not follow unjust laws. Moral philosophy, it's just, it's a bliss to read. Um, so take a break, take a breather from social media today and spend 20 or 30 minutes reading this letter. It's, you, you won't regret it. There are a few lines though that especially jumped through time and grabbed me by the throat. So I'm gonna read a bit from the letter. So this is from King. He says, I must make two honest confessions to you, my Christian and Jewish brothers. First, I must confess that over the last few years, I have been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. So again, he's talking about people who agreed with him, but just weren't really ready to do that much about it. He said, I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion, and I'm going to use his words here, hope you don't mind, um, I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in the stride toward freedom is not the Ku Klux Klanner, but the white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice, who constantly says, I agree with you in the goal you seek, but I can't agree with your methods, who paternalistically feels that he can set the timetable for another man's freedom. Shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. He goes, goes on to rephrase this. He says, lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering than outright rejection. So what he needed, what Martin Luther King Jr. was saying he and the civil rights movement needed was in fact for white moderates who agreed with him but just weren't doing much to get on board. Without them, there just there wouldn't be enough people to change the system. There weren't enough registered voters to do anything about it because no one would give black people registered uh, voting status. and. In some ways, I think we're, we're way better off than we were 60 or 70 years ago, but in some ways I think we're in a similar spot today, and that's why we're undergoing these next four or five weeks. Uh, I think I've been very challenged in the last few years to hear that 
uh, predominantly white churches have been quite complicit in all of this that's happened, from slavery to Jim Crow to uh, segregationism, all of these movements that have happened in America, uh, the white church is kind of, even though even the moderates within it, have, a lot of them have just stood by. Um, so I was very impacted by this, what he said about you know, the, the white moderate, because I almost feel like a, a number of us at Capital City could fit that bill. Um, there are a number of churches today that when conversations around race come up, um, of course we're not where we were 60 years ago, but given their posture and given the way a lot of people in predominantly white churches respond to issues of race today, if you were to transpose them back 60 or 70 years, I am confident, and I can say this before the Lord, that a lot of those churches would be on the segregationism side of the argument based on the way a lot of people are responding to race issues today. I don't think Capital City's there, not at all. I think we are, we are for justice and moving forward and we understand what the Bible teaches about it. But I also I don't feel like we're necessarily out in front leading some of those conversations like say the black church is. Um, and so when I read this talking about the white moderate who's not doing much, I was like, oh my gosh, that, that kind of feels like me. Uh, <laughs> so that's just, I, I, wanna, I want you to know where I'm, I'm coming from. So uh, evangelicals then in the, during the civil rights movement as well as now have trouble with this whole line of thinking and that's because as Americans, not just evangelicals, as Americans we're all extremely individualistic people. So what resonates with us when we talk about sin or any kind of wrongdoing, what resonates with us is our sin, my, you know, my personal sin. You know, how do I get forgiven by God? How do I get saved so that I'm not you know, under my own sin? But there is a such thing in the Bible as a civic or a national sin. There's a ton of it. The Bible's filled with it, and it's kind of a shock sometimes to Americans. And part of the disconnect is that we don't really read the Old Testament or, or the Bible at all. Because people don't really do much thinking anymore, sadly. Uh, it's easier just to unwind and be plugged into the matrix of con constant you know, feeds in our mind. But um, the Bible's filled with this. Uh, if you read Isaiah and the Minor Prophets, the talk about corporate or, or sort of societal sin is huge. So you can sin by what you do, and this is what we tend to focus on, sins of commission, these are the things that we do or commit, but you can also sin by what you leave undone, right? So the sins that you don't commit, sins of omission, things that you ought to do but leave undone. And this is the category that often comes up when you talk about issues of civic sin or, or societal sin of justice and oppression. And what was driving Martin Luther King Jr. is that he actually knew the scriptures and had a more holistic view of how this worked. You know, he read them, he was a minister, and so he actually understood what the image of God meant, right? That all of us are born equal in the image of God, you know, white, black, old, young, uh, the baby in utero, the um, advanced Alzheimer's patient who's about to die, that we were all made in the image of God equal. He understood Galatians 3.28 when Paul says, there's, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So he, he got this. We are all one, we are all equal, and we are all made in the image of God. And this drove him, and he knew he was right. So let me read a couple of other texts to you uh, from scripture. So this, so this is Amos 5. Amos is one of the minor prophets. Minor not as in less important, but that his book is smaller. So they call the minor prophets, the, the smaller books, they call them minor prophets. And uh, God is speaking here, and he says, Therefore, because you trample on the poor, and you exact taxes of grain from him. So there's this whole thing about oppressing the poor and trampling on the poor, and then I'm skipping a few verses. This is huge. He says, I hate, this is God speaking, I hate I despise your feasts 
and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. So these are things Israel is doing to try to worship God. They're doing feasts, they're doing assemblies. It would be like if we were to do worship and then do a fast or something. That's what they're doing here. Um, He says, God goes on to say, take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps, I will not listen, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. And he doesn't finish the sentence, but the implication is clear. I hate the sound of your worship, but let justice roll down like the waters, and then I will love the sound of your worship. He doesn't even have to finish that statement. In Isaiah 1, God, again speaking through the prophet, says, though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Cease to do evil, learn to do good. Seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. So think about this. Is, is correcting oppression an individual thing or a societal thing? Now, there, you know, seeking justice for the poor, for the fatherless, for the widow, it has its individual component, and there are things we can do individually or as families, but oppression often lives and, and thrives systemically. It's us saying, well, hey, you know, these systems were in place when we were born. You know, we didn't put those systems there. But then not doing anything to change them, that's a sin of omission, of not doing anything. Uh, Amos 5.15, going on a little further in the chapter, God says, establish justice in the gate. And if you know much about the Old Testament, you know that the gate is, if, if that were translated into modern English for our own context, we would say the courthouse or you know, the, the parliament or something like that. The gate is where all of the civic leadership, political leadership happens. So when he says, establish justice in the gate, it is a command. So he's saying, hey, people of God, establish justice in your civic and societal national conversation. So it's a call to seek justice at that level. And if we don't, if we let oppression exist, I think the message from the Old Testament is clear that God might say to us, I hate your feasts, I hate your assemblies. Now, this is strong language, but this is straight out of the Bible, and I'm not doing any sort of gymnastics to get this message to come out. This is exactly what it says. Can you imagine if God came into your church, you know, our church, someone's church today, and was like, I hate what you just did because you're letting oppression reign. It's just like, what? Like, I can't even imagine. Um, All right, so that's just, this isn't so much a, this is more of an awakening I think of the church rather than this isn't like some rebuke to capital city. I think it's, Hey, let's open our eyes to what's happened in our country. Uh, so I admit to you a number of years ago, I did not think this was really that much of a problem anymore. About 10 years ago, maybe I didn't think, you know, I grew up in Minnesota and I'm thinking, um, you know, the civil rights movement, slavery, Jim Crow, all of that was like for the history books, right? That's, that's where we've come from, sort of like the Declaration of Independence. That's, that's the history books and it has implications for today, but that conversation is sort of done. Uh, you know, around 10 years ago, I'm like, hey, you know, we have a black president, like, you know, we're, we're, we're doing all right, right? Uh, and in some ways, it's true that Martin Luther King Jr.'s dream had been reached in some ways, right? To have a black president, you know, 60 years ago would have been unthinkable. Um, there's a number of other things we could we could talk about, um, but over the course of a few years, some good reading, some good friends, I you could say I had my glasses cleaned. You know, I I, I came to see more clearly. Um, so what I want to do is I want to ask because I know some of you might be in the same place I was about ten years ago, thinking, yeah, you know, there are probably some racists like in the South, uh, but as long as you don't go there, like everything everything should be fine and everyone's on the same footing and everyone's the same. Uh, <laughs> 
I'm, I'm caricaturing myself a little bit. It wasn't that. I wasn't that naive, but still, I did not realize the, the, the gravity of the problem. So what I want to ask is, is this still a problem? Is there still significant systemic oppression and injustice in our neighborhood, in our city, and in our country? Um, think on that. Think of your own answer. You don't have to say it out loud. I hope you don't. No, uh, think on that, and then I'll, I'll go on. I am convinced before God that even though there are other arguments to this, that I believe there still is an overwhelming amount of systemic oppression in our society, and that the church and that we as individuals have something to do about it. So if there are huge systemic oppression gaps, let's just say that I'm right. Um, why isn't the predominantly, why aren't predominantly white churches in those spaces? Because the black church is, right? They're leading a ton of these conversations. But why not predominantly white churches? I think King actually has a good answer to this in his letter, um, but I won't, I won't get into that. I'll let you read it. Um, so why aren't we the first to make sure that we understand what's going on and how we can help? So I want to do a bit of a temperature check and share with you, again, a little bit more of a talk today almost than a sermon. But I want to share with you some of the things that have hit me the hardest that I've learned. Uh, there are probably about 25 to 30 different issues that all came to mind, but I've whittled it down to two or three, just some of the things that come to mind when I think, do we have systemic oppression? Is there any proof of it? What can we talk about? So first and foremost, I think this is the foremost, and it's, it's a newer part of this conversation because a lot of civil rights leaders even didn't even realize it was happening until about 10 years ago. Uh, but it's called mass incarceration. Has anyone heard this term? Mass incarceration? Okay. Um, I've, I've learned this in the last three or four years. I was just blown away. The prison system is out of sight, out of mind. So even civil rights leaders did not know that this was happening. Even 10 years ago, a lot of civil rights leaders were not aware that this was a big problem. So did you guys know the United States, our country, has only 5% of the world's population, but we have 25% of the world's prisoners. So 5% of the world's population 25% of the world's incarcerated population, and most of those are black and brown men. Okay, so black and brown men make up, uh, actually black and brown people make up about 27% of our country. So I guess half of that, that 13.5% are black or brown men rather than women. Yet the vast majority of prisoners are from this category. Uh, some people are calling this the new Jim Crow. This is like the new huge problem. Uh, with race in our country. Um, and if you if you enter into a conversation about mass incarceration and just how disproportionately the U.S. locks up black and brown men, almost certainly you will hear, unless you're in a group of like civil rights advocates, you will hear someone say something like this. They'll say, well, the real problem isn't discrimination in the justice system, but lack of fathers in the black community. Anyone heard that? Anything like that before? Okay. Um, and, you know, people are often saying that the reason black and brown men are overrepresented in the prison system is lack of fathers in the home. Now, it is true statistically that having a father in the home, just like having a mother, makes a huge difference on your outlook in life. It's good to have two parents in the home. And it is true that the black community lacks fathers more so than, say, the white community. But have you ever wondered why? Why does the black community lack fathers? A lot of people don't go that next step and ask, but, but ask. Well, why, why does the black community lack fathers? And the answer is that many of them are in prison. And then if you say, well, why are they in prison? That same person maybe who brought up that sticking point in the conversation, according to Michelle Alexander, this is how she puts it. She wrote the new Jim Crow where I'm getting some of this um, 
People will say something like, well, black men are going to prison because of their stunningly high rates of drug addiction and violent crime. And what's closer to the truth is that there are few fathers in the black community because the system locks them up for crimes that they commit in equal numbers with white people. It's just that they go away for it and white people don't. And there's actually good numbers to prove this. So let me read two, two uh, paragraphs from Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow. This took the nation by storm about five or 10 years ago. Uh, she writes, the impact of the drug war has been astounding. In less than 30 years, the US penal population exploded from around 300,000 to more than 2 million with drug convictions accounting for the majority of the increase. Let me just break there. So in a, in a time when our population didn't even double, we went from 300,000 in the prison system to about seven times that much in just 30 years. Our population didn't even double, and we went from 300,000 to 2 million, 7x in our prison population over those years. All right, back in. Um, the United States now has the highest rate of incarceration in the world, dwarfing the rates of nearly every other developed country, even surpassing those in highly repressive regimes like Russia, China, and Iran. In Germany, 93 people are in prison for every 100,000 adults and children. In the United States, the rate is roughly eight times that, or 750 per 100,000. The racial dimension of mass incarceration is its most striking feature. No other country in the world imprisons so many of its racial or ethnic minorities as the United States of America. These, another paragraph from her, these stark racial disparities cannot be explained by rates of drug crime. Studies show that people of all colors use and sell illegal drugs at remarkably similar rates. If there are significant differences in the surveys to be found, they frequently suggest that whites particularly white youth, are more likely to engage in drug crime than people of color. That is not what one would guess, however, when entering our nation's prisons and jails, which are overflowing with black and brown men convicted of drug crimes. In some states, listen to this, black men have been admitted to prison on drug charges at rates 20 to 50 times greater than those of white men. And that's white use and white sales of drugs are equal as a percentage to black, to like all, all communities, all, all minorities and majorities all use drugs at about the same right rate. And this really hit me that um, what she's saying here is that if 50 white men and 50 black men are all caught either selling drugs or using drugs, whatever, make it an equal thing that they're, they're caught for. Uh, in some counties in America, it's as bad as every one of the black guys goes to prison. One white guy goes to prison for the same crime. Now, not all counties are that bad, but there's not a single county where there's not a disparity. Um, and when those men get out of jail, well, guess what? They're felons for life. And when they're felons, so you can't say, well, you're black, you can't vote. You're black, you can't live in this neighborhood. Obviously, that's illegal. But when they're felons, you can say all of that. You're a felon. You can't vote anymore or your voting rights are extremely difficult or restricted. Uh, you're a felon, you can't live in this neighborhood or in this you know, entire swath of, of the city. Uh, you can't get jobs very easily. Uh, and what's interesting is it's legal when they're a felon, but the only people that are being thrown into the prison system en masse are black and brown men. So you see the connection here, right? So now these black and brown men are spending years of their life uh, in jail rather than with their families, like, you know, like my, you know, Uncle Joe or whoever, I don't have an Uncle Joe, but like I know a number of white people, uh, friends and acquaintances who have used drugs or sold drugs. And I even have a pretty clean, like I have, I have a 
clean background. I didn't even, I wasn't even involved in that. I still know a number of white people and never, never a thought of going to jail or any, you know, this is sort of a joke to them now, like, oh yeah, that was a pretty rough season. Glad I'm out of it now, but like, they're okay. Uh, whereas if you're black or brown, the chance that you end up spending those years in prison instead is quite high. And when you spend those years in prison, now you're spending those years with real and hardened criminals. I mean, what's the conversation at the prison table about, right? Like these are real and, and hard criminals, some of them who are in prison, and you just went away for you know use, using drugs or maybe selling marijuana or something. And now you're there for years with people who are actually violent criminals who are like murdering and, and, and whatnot. Um, so instead of building up your resume and spending time with your family and loving on your kids, now you're over with this group of people and as you've heard, you know, bad character corrupts good morals, right? So being around that element can certainly not be good for your soul always. Um, it's interesting if you look at the war on drugs in our country. So this is a heavy sermon, sorry guys, but uh, it's good to talk about. Um, There's a war on drugs that was started in the 80s. Interestingly, it started before crack became a problem in our country. A lot of people think it was a response to crack. It started before. Anyway, um, but crack came into this country and different drugs, for whatever reason, tend to flourish in different communities. So the opioid crisis was a very distinctly white and rural, lower education, middle education problem. Black people weren't really suffering much with the opioid crisis. Crack was a, a, a problem that hit the black community really hard. It didn't hit the white community. So different drugs, for whatever reason, find their ways into different communities. And it's really interesting if you look at the verbiage that when crack was a huge problem in the 80s and 90s, people said, well, this is a crime issue. Let's send anyone who you know uses or sells crack, um, let's send them to jail in droves. And so black people were just going away in droves for, um, for, for use of crack. Uh, but then the coin flip 30 years later, blacks were doing quite well. There's a lot of hope in the air. First black president, you know, a lot of things were changing. And rural whites became addicted to opioids and prescription drugs like never before in this country's history. Overdosing like crazy. Most of you in this room probably know someone by name who, who died during this period. Um, you know, fentanyl and all the rest. Uh, so they were dying left and right. And you're thinking, oh, like what happened? Was it a war on drugs? Send all the rural white people to jail? No, they called it a public health crisis. Do you guys remember this? Called it a public health crisis, which it was. But think of the audacity, right? Both were public health crises. And so you're thinking, why not call it a public health crisis both times, right? They even, uh, I, don't, I don't understand drugs very well, but apparently some of these opioids were, opioids were taken with needles. And so they even had H, HIV outbreaks in rural white communities, which is extremely rare for rural white communities to get a, a lot of HIV. So they were having HIV outbreaks. So the state, and this is a good idea, but the state even set up a needle exchange program. Like bring us, you know, cause people are reusing needles and sharing needles. They're like, bring us your needles and then we'll give you fresh ones to continue your drug use. But it's actually a wise idea if you flesh it out because people take time to get over their drug addiction, but if you can bring them in, you can get them counselors, you can get them help, you can get them research or literature or whatever, and you can intervene. But I mean, this is like white people are dying from overdoses, like come in, exchange your needles, uh, which is actually a good idea. But it's just notice the difference in posture. When black people use drugs in great numbers, send them away, ruin their lives, whatever. When whites do, it becomes a public health crisis. Call the ambulance, give away free needles, don't send them to prison. Um, mass incarceration is easily one of the principal racial issues of today, and it was hidden uh, for 
for a lot of different reasons, uh, out of sight, out of mind. One more thing so that we don't get into this too much. Um, there's a marriage problem, people say, in the black community um, in terms of the, the family and other things. You know, marriage is one of the most consistent indicators. If you grew up in a, in a home with two married parents, it's one of the most consistent indicators of your success later in life. And so sometimes you'll hear white people say like, well, black people just need to figure out how to get married and stay married and then it'll all get better. And I, I didn't quite realize this. I guess if someone would have asked me, I maybe would have put it together. But I did not know that for about the 250 or 300 years of legal slavery in this country, slaves were never allowed to be married. It makes sense, right? Like people were treating them as property. They didn't have the rights to marry. And so for 300 years, you know, people would be on these plantations and they would, you know, partner up. They would have children, but people weren't just staying there their whole lives. Slave owners were constantly selling and buying up and down river. So imagine being in love, having a child with your partner, and then watching that child be sold down river, sold up river, watching your spouse be separated from you. And that wasn't just like one generation where like there's still other generations that are alive who remember a better day and remember what it, like, what it was like to have a healthy black family. This was like 300 years of no black family at all in this country, like anywhere. Um, and so, you know, when, when slaves first got their freedom, they were given, it was paltry, but they were given just the tiniest little stipend so that basically it was because white people were afraid of crime. They were like, well, we don't want them to rob us. We'll give them something terrible. But they were given some um, stipend to at least try to get a train ticket or, or whatever. Um, and most of them, the, the, the most purchased thing with that modicum of money was taking out ads in the local newspaper looking for lost children, spouses, uh, or parents over the years. And someone has said, and I wish I could find who said it, but I remember this, um, someone has said, it is a miracle that the black family even exists in this country after 300 years of systematic destruction of the black family. All right, I'd love to talk about the Rondo neighborhood in St. Paul to bring it really home, but we don't have time, so I'm gonna move on. But Google that, find it on Wikipedia, read about what happened to the Rondo community, um, especially if you ever drive on Interstate 94. It's Sounds strange, but Google it. You can read about it. Uh, so those are just some things that are going on now and because of what's happened in our history. And in my estimation, I believe there is still blatant and clear systemic corruption. There are some other, there are arguments that can be had. There are other takes that can be had on these issues. But in an audience like this, I don't necessarily think those need much discussing or time. Most of us are coming from environments that aren't necessarily saying what I'm saying now. So I'm giving that precedent. But I want to uh, encourage you, you know, we, again, we didn't cause this necessarily. We weren't born right when these systems happen. This isn't a guilt thing. But we also cannot claim to have unseen. We can't say that we, we haven't seen this, right? We can't claim ignorance. And we are still liable for sins of omission, what we don't do to help fix things. So where does that leave us? Um, you know, many of us grew up learning about this as, you know, history. This Look at the horror in the past, but look at the progress now. Um, but we're still in it. We haven't arrived, and I think we have a long way to go. Again, we're still in a much better place than 50 years ago. I was, I was talking with one of my friends who's going to be preaching for us. His name is Josh Williams. He baptized Cohen, if Cohen's here. Um, he'll be preaching for us, and he told me on the phone, he said, I consider myself to be living in the dream that Martin Luther King Jr. foresaw. And I thought, well, that's, a, that's true, and that, like, what, a, what a refreshing take you know, on this issue. And it, it is true. He's a black man married to a white woman. He went to great educational institutions. He preaches for a diverse audience, often majority white. 
uh, and that's celebrated and rightly so and no one really bats an eye at that especially here in Minnesota um, but 70 years ago even here you wouldn't have seen much of that black man married to a white woman going to all these great institutions preaching for mostly white people so yeah it is a lot we are it is a lot better now than it was before um, we did have a democratically elected black president in some ways we are in Martin Luther King Jr.'s dream but I think people are fairly agreed we still have a very long way to go and I want to say what does the church have to do with this like what is what is the church's role what is our church's role and some of you might think man are you asking us to be more political and those of you who know me well um, know that that's not necessarily what I'm saying uh, if your calling is to be involved in politics absolutely we don't shy away from that we don't hide from the world we believe in transforming culture not hiding from it um, but there are many other ways to contribute if you just don't really feel called to that whole thing that's okay I don't necessarily feel that either Martin Luther King jr. himself said I will never run for office I am a minister of the gospel this is my calling I will never run for office and like I, I, I get that um, but there are charities, nonprofits, you know, home as an individual as well, even though we can overstress that, your neighborhood, and, and of course, through political involvement, you can get involved. Uh, but here's the thing. Predominantly white churches have been lagging behind in this conversation forever. Okay, like we've never, never caught up to this conversation. And I'd like Capital City Church to work toward and pray about getting out in front and, and even lead and serve in this, you know, through partnering with, you know, other churches who um, maybe have been there for longer than us, who know what they're doing. Um, but not only do we have these Old Testament texts, Jesus makes this very clear. He says in Luke 4, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. In John 20, Jesus then says, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. So I preached on this once before, but just I want to remind you, Jesus literally says, I was sent to proclaim liberty to the captives and good news for the poor and freedom of the, of the yoke for those who are oppressed. And he says, and as the Father sends me, so I send you. Right? So he was, he was actually sent to do those things, and we are actually sent to be sent like he was. Uh, and a large portion, I would say, of our white Protestant brothers and sisters miss this because they focus mostly and exclusively on the good news of Jesus then, right? Like once we die, what does the good news mean for us then, once we've died and, and, and he saves us then? But the, the good news is that Jesus isn't just bringing us into his kingdom then, right? That he is bringing his kingdom on earth now. He's healing the sick now. He's loosing the bonds of oppression now. He's, you know, breaking the chains now. And, um, what good news, right? That he's preaching, he's preaching this good news to the poor now. He was sent to do those things, and he tells us that he is sending us out in the same way that he was sent. So be encouraged, Capital City Church. I think God has already done a great work in our church this year. Our partnerships with the, partnerships with the Way, with our brother Joseph here, he's going to be preaching for us in a few, two or three weeks. Well, I forget the date. Um, our thriving church partnership, serving the homeless together under the leadership of the way has been incredible. Uh, we have a small group that's serving and tutoring immigrant children who are struggling. As a number of, I mean, a significant portion of our total budget this last year is going to help. You know, it's amazing black church is doing wonderful work. Um, and so I think as a, as a portion of our finances and our time, we're actually doing really good work for being what I felt like is like we could be, we could be, lumped into this moderate category, like, and I think we're doing really good work in that way. Um, but I want this to keep going. I don't just want to run toward the middle of the pack on these issues. We want to truly be sent like Jesus was sent. 
And it's his death and resurrection on the cross that even make this work possible, right? The work of racial reconciliation, the work of repentance, of realizing, you know, what was what happened before us that we didn't choose, but then what can we do now? That work of repentance uh, becomes possible through what Jesus did on the cross. He broke down the dividing wall of hostility between races and tribes and nations. I mean, not just here, all over the world. Tribes that absolutely hate each other are uniting under the blood of Christ in the gospel, and it's amazing. And he calls us to enter this work that he was sent for. So if we want to lead out in this way, the first step to doing that is becoming more aware. It doesn't sound like a very awesome action point, like, hey guys, get educated, right? Like, but that's what, I, that's, that's what we're going to be doing. So uh, you've got to start somewhere, and you've got to learn You've got to learn the field before you can figure out where you could be of use. So as a church, we'll soon be rolling out some kind of a reading program. We're still working on some of the details, whether we all read a book together or we choose three or four, and then people can choose groups. I'm not sure. But we'll be doing doing some reading on this. Again, we're not a racial reconciliation church as like a first pillar. It wasn't what we necessarily founded to do, you know, predominantly white church. But this is clearly something that God calls us to. It's all over the Bible. So we want it to be a big deal even if it's not like the thing that's in our mission statement, vision statement. So I don't want you to think like, oh, we're taking this whole different direction. This is a part of the gospel. This is a part of following Jesus. So we're gonna do this. And part of that is getting educated and reading about this. Um, this won't solve everything, uh, but it's a, it's a start. For you know, centuries in this country, uh, black people have either been silenced or removed from white churches. So we wanna do a, it's a really small thing, but how can we reverse that clock a bit um, and one, one of the ways that we're hoping to do that is to have exclusively black preachers for four weeks, and our brother Joseph will be one of them. Um, and it, it coincides with Black History Month, so because of, uh, because of the Super Bowl, it kind of messed everything up and no one was quite available, and so we pushed it all back a week. But think of it as Black History Month, you know, moved back a week. So we're gonna be spending the next four weeks hearing from black preachers. Some of them will uh, frankly be, like if I'm kind of on the middle of the spectrum of like, some people look all toward individual choice as the problem for the ills in society. Other people look toward like systemic oppression. I'm probably more in the middle, like both, both clearly are a factor. Some of these men who are coming in are probably a little bit more conservative than me on some of these things. Like there's, you know, like black men who grew up and, and just said, oh no, like things are actually better than you're saying, Jordan. Like they would disagree with some of the things that I'm bringing up. Um, some will be speaking on race specifically. Others will simply preach for us on adjacent issues. The point though is that it's just a small correction of having the majority sit under our minority brothers and let them speak into us uh, rather than the other way around. The Bible is absolutely crystal clear on this, that the job of the people of God, among other things, is to bring justice. Micah 6.8 says, do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly. And part of our job is to free the poor from oppression, to repent, repent of our history, no matter what that history might be, uh, to repent of any complicity in injustice, uh, and to seek justice. If we don't do this, I would remind you that God may just reject our prayer and say, I'm not listening, and say, I hate your assembly, which... Dear Lord, I never want to hear that on Judgment Day. Um, the good news of Jesus is that he died for our sins, rose again, he conquered death, right, so that we could be forgiven and have eternal life in him. Our, I think predominantly white evangelical churches are comfortable with this, but the good news is also that he's bringing his kingdom now, that he looses the bonds of oppression now, that sickness is being kicked out now, right, that evil spirits are losing their hold now. That's all part of his kingdom as well. So let's not miss that calling. Um, and let me, uh, this 
heavy sermon. Three in a row. What's going on, guys? Uh, let me pray. Let me pray to close this, and then I invite you guys to just hang out for longer. We've got the room for another half an hour. Get some more donuts and coffee. All right. Uh, Lord, we thank you so much for uh, this time that we can be together. And we, uh, we just pray, Lord, for wisdom. We pray for guidance that you would help us in... Um, I don't know, in, in repenting of the past, in, in, being, in becoming more aware, even though it's uncomfortable, becoming aware of the complicity uh, that many of our ancestors had in, um, in not fixing the system and not allowing, or in allowing uh, injustice to live on. So we pray, Lord, that you would guide us, that you would help us through our, our partnerships with the way, through our brothers and sisters in Christ uh, who can uh, speak to us and, and, and guide us in this. Uh, we just pray, Lord, uh, that you be with everyone today and that uh, if they're watching the Super Bowl later, that you'd help them to be just a, a minister of the gospel to the people that they're around. Um, we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a project of the Capital City Church in the West 7th community of St. Paul, Minnesota. Find us on Instagram at Capital City Church STP or visit our website for more information at capitalcitystpaul.com.